0: Hi everyone, Vinita here, the host of Don't Call Me Resilient. We're bringing you an extra episode this week to share a fascinating interview from The Conversation Weekly, another podcast from The Conversation Network. It's hosted by my wonderful colleague Gemma Ware from The Conversation UK. The Conversation Weekly is a show for curious minds. Each week Gemma and her colleagues speak to an academic expert to learn about the fascinating discoveries they're making to understand the world and the big questions they're still trying to answer. Gemma's based in the UK, but the conversations she's hosting are interesting and relevant wherever you are in the world. This episode of The Conversation Weekly centres around the 60th anniversary of Kenyan independence from British colonial rule, which took place on December 12th, 1963. Each year, the country celebrates the occasion with a national holiday, Jamhuri Day. And for much of the past 60 years, Choral music has been a regular feature of those celebrations. Gemma speaks with Dosaline Kaguru, a research associate in cultural and literary production in Africa at the University of Bristol in the UK. She's published research on the history of choral music and the role it plays in Kenyan national political culture. The episode explores how much one song can tell you about the politics of a new nation and who controls what gets remembered and what gets forgotten. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you give it a listen. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this one, be sure to listen and subscribe to The Conversation Weekly, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I'll hand you over to Gemma.
1: 60 years ago, on December the 12th, 1963, Kenya celebrated its independence from British colonial rule.
2: The Garden Party at Government House was an informal farewell to British rule in Kenya.
1: Each year, the country now marks the occasion with a national holiday, Jamhuri Day. And for much of the past 60 years, one piece of patriotic choral music has been a regular feature of those celebrations. In this episode, how much one song can tell you about the politics of a new nation and who controls what gets remembered and what gets forgotten. I'm Gemma Ware and you're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. I'm joined by Julius Miner, East Africa editor at The Conversation based in Nairobi. Welcome, Julius. Great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you very much, Gemma.
1: So, Julius, Kenya is celebrating its 60th anniversary of independence this month on December the 12th. Tell us what happens in Kenya to mark this day.
2: Yeah, so there's lots happening in preparation for Independence Day, which is called Jamhuri Day. Jamhuri means Republic in Kiswahili. It's a national celebration that recalls Kenya's journey to independence, which was particularly violent. Uh, So this event is marked in cities and towns up and down the country. Uh, People will be filling up stadiums to listen to speeches. And the main speech is that of the president. None of this is complete without traditional dances and choirs. This could be school choirs, adult choirs. which speak to the story of independence mainly. It's just become part of Kenya's political culture.
1: It's a big, important way to end the year, I guess, for Kenya.
2: It's a big day. It's a public holiday. Everyone uh, will market in their own way. Some will go to stadiums, others will go on family outings, and generally others will feel that it's the beginning of the festive season.
1: At the conversation in Kenya, you've been thinking about this year's celebration in particular because it marks 60 years since independence. And one of the stories that you've been working on is about the role in this particular type of choral music that is often played at big celebrations like Jamhuri Day this month. So what struck you about this particular research?
2: Every Kenyan would know about choral music as part of the political culture. What this research manages to do is to look at it with great depth and to see how it is an extension of our political culture and how it's a reflection of the kenyan society and that speaks also a lot between both the citizens and their relationship with those who govern them because a lot of it is praise music looking back at the past at the heroes and heroines of the past And uh, those are the present.
1: Thanks, Julius. So at your suggestion, we reached out to Dosalind Kiguru, who's a Kenyan researcher currently based in the UK at the University of Bristol, where she's a research associate focusing on cultural and literary production in Africa. And she's been focusing in her research on Kenyan choral music. So I'm going to start off playing you this piece of music. How do you say the name of the song? Is it Wimbo Wa Historia? Wimbo Wa
3: Historia, a song of history.
1: Okay, so here's the song.
0: Wimbo, wimbo wa Historia,
3: kwa
1: okay, so tell me, Baseline, when you hear this song, what does it mean to you? What do, what do you think about it?
3: <laughs> I think I'm the wrong person to ask because I have deconstructed that song in so many different contexts (laughs) because the song was originally meant to kind of invoke patriotism in the listener. I'm not so sure whether it still does for me. When I was young, and this is the 80s and 90s, it used to be played a lot in the national radio, and there were not many FM stations. The national radio was probably the only radio station for most people, and especially on national holidays. It used to be a very common song that would be played on radio. And the idea was to kind of create a patriotism among the people, and especially because the tone of the song is quite sad. The singing is kind of very melancholic, it's very sad. It's trying to invoke in you a kind of feeling like there are people that really suffered for this country. So really, we should transport that suffering into a kind of political currency. ...that guides how we behave, that guides how we think about histories of Kenya... ...and how those histories need to shape the things that we do today.
1: Doslina spent a lot of time thinking about music like this... ...with her colleague Patrick Ernest Monte... ...a music lecturer based at Kabarak University in Kenya. In 2018, they published research tracing the history of Kenyan choral music... ...and the way it's been used for political purposes...
3: Music has always been used as a tool for political resistance, starting with church music, because originally, church music was music that was inherited from Europe, mostly from English hymns. But because these are people that didn't speak the English language at that particular time, it meant there was a lot of translation from English hymns to local languages. But through that translation process, people learned that because the colonial administrators did not understand the local languages, they could use the same tune that exists in a well-known hymn, but put different words that are words of resistance.
1: So, Dostaline, why is it that this form of music, which let's be honest, is quite a Western form of music, is still being used 60 years after independence to celebrate national holidays in Kenya?
3: I think because in as much as it's an inherited genre, it has existed in the region for such a long time The genre, yes, remains that it's inherited from elsewhere, but the content is very much local. The same way, for example, we would say that the novel is an inherited genre, but really does not mean that writers from the Global South do not use the novel to write about their experiences. But at the same time, if you go further, before the state became a state in the 60s, choral music was very much present in church performances. The colonial aspect was significantly aided through religion, through the church. And this is the kind of music that was deemed as respectable music for Christians, for new converts. Like you could not just go in dancing like you have no care in the world with drums. So somehow this genre has existed in the region for years. So it's, it can no longer be termed as a foreign genre that mm-hmm. does not fit into local realities and imaginings.
1: It's got an air of seriousness about it. If it's seen as church music, Mm -hmm. there's some kind of solemnity to it.
3: Exactly. Choral music is neat to compose, to perform there's a frame that kind of defines the beginning and the end as opposed to let's say contemporary journalists in which it's performative and it's oral and can keep changing with every performance and i think that's one of the reasons why this particular music has existed all the way from the 1960s to the present the choral music is very much defined and stuck you're not hmm. going to change the wording you're not going to change the structure of the music
1: there's no improvisation
3: yes and that becomes very significant as a political tool Because you don't want uncertainties when you're dealing with music as a political tool. You want it to be exact for it to be effective. Because choral
1: music plays such a central role in Kenyan political culture, the government is keen to maintain control over it.
3: We cannot discuss political choral music in Kenya outside of the PPMC, Permanent Presidential Music Commission, that was established in the 1980s. And this was an institution that is still going on until today that is based with curating music for the state from National Celebration Days for the radio. Over the recent years, this music has moved beyond the frame of the choral music and composing other genres of music. But really it started with choral music.
1: The song Wimbo wa Historia is a prime example. It was composed in 1964 by a musician called Enoch Ondego, a pioneer of patriotic choral music. The song was first performed by school children for Jomo Kenyatta, Kenya's first president.
3: Most of the song is about the violence of the colonial state, but upon specific individuals. Sometimes it goes further to say that there was crying in the whole nation because there was bloodshed. It's kind of trying to write history through music, to say these are the things that happened because of colonialism. This is how our leaders suffered because of colonialism, especially Jomo Kenyatta.
1: In the decade before Kenyan independence, Kenyatta had led Kenya's anti-colonial political movement, which later became the Kenya-African National Union, KANU. In 1952, long-standing unrest at British colonial rule erupted in violence, known as the Mau Mau Rebellion or the Emergency. Kenyatta was accused of orchestrating the violence and arrested and then imprisoned. Dosilin explained to me how Wimbawa Historia's Kiswahili lyrics focus on what happened to Kenyatta and a handful of other political figures in this period.
3: He suffered all these violences to his body, to his psyche. So it creates a hierarchy, right? It means that even if you're talking about a history, even if that is a history of violence, we want to foreground the suffering of one particular person, right? But what does it mean when the suffering of only one person is the one that is significant enough for remembering? Does it mean that we are silencing the other stories?
1: Near the end of the song, the lyrics use the line, forget the past and instead build our country. This was a phrase that Kenyatta himself began to emphasise once he'd become president.
3: That particular phrase was a rallying call for Jomo Kenyatta, the former president, asking people to forget the atrocities that had happened upon them. But then, what does it mean when the song says it's a song of memory, then at the end, you tell us to forget those atrocities. It's kind of saying that we are enumerating these violences, but we are enumerating it for the purpose of forgetting. Because without forgetting, then we cannot move on. As a critic, you start asking yourself, how do we forget if the song keeps singing about it?
1: One section of the song refers to what happened when Kenyatta, who'd been released from prison in 1961, travelled to the UK to take part in discussions about a new Kenyan constitution at Lancaster House in London.
3: But he was not the only person that went to Lancaster for the constitutional meeting. So it foregrounds the personality of the first president as the only person that was responsible for the constitutional making process. We argue that this kind of presenting the first president as somebody that suffered not only emotionally, but physically in so many different ways, it means that you're supposed to revere him. He's the person who sacrificed the most. So that means his position as a leader of government, his position as president should not be questioned. This later became known as a cult of personalities in Kenya, where political leaders became like a cult. And the reason they became as a cult is because they had gained so many cultural capital by those false narratives about how much they suffered. And when you talk about the violence
1: that isn't mentioned, what what are you talking about? Give me some examples. In
3: 1952, when the colonial government imposed a state of emergency on the nation, during that state of emergency that lasted for almost 10 years, a lot of bloodshed happened all across the country, whereby people were put in camps, like taken from their farms, and put in kind of enclosures. And your work is to go work in the colonially owned farms so that you have money to pay taxes. The violence went beyond being forced to work. Some people were incarcerated, actually. And the inhuman conditions of that suffering has been documented by so many people. And I'm thinking about a book called Britain's Gulag, in which it goes into actual descriptions, for example of the sexual violations that were happening during the colonial period, the physical violations that involve cutting people's limbs off, or even actually killing them. So when we're talking about a song of history that is presenting itself by saying we have a history of violence, it really glosses over the violence, except for the part where it says there was bloodshed in the country in a general term. There was so much to talk about, that is what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that it should be a music that necessarily glorifies bloodshed, but there was no reason to foreground one person.
1: Doslin's careful to point out that the composer, Enoch Ondego, probably underwent some censorship of his music.
3: In Kenya, in region and most part of Africa, it's very much shrouded around Censorship. You as a creator are censored by the state, or at least by the institutions. But you as a creator also kind of has to keep engaging with a lot of self-censorship. So I would assume a first performance through the president is so that you make sure that the song is okay before it becomes like public performances.
1: Going deeper into their analysis of the music in the song, Dosline and her colleague Ernest argue that there are some signs Ondego was subtly trying to critique the regime in the music. (laughs)
3: When you listen to the rhythm structures of it, sometimes the rhythm structures do not align with the local words, such that the words end up delaying the rhythm, or you don't have to say the entire word for it to fit into the rhythm. Later, when music analysts come in to analyze this, they realize this is deliberate, because he was a very good composer. He could not have deliberately not known that this
1: the Did he ever write about that or talk about the fact that he was doing that?
3: He never talked about it.
1: Whatever the message that Ondega was trying to get across in the song, it's been used by different regimes throughout Kenya's 60 years of independence for their own political purposes. After falling out of favour in the early 2000s during the presidency of Mwai Kabaki, the song had a resurgence after 2013, when Uhuru Kenyatta, Jomo Kenyatta's son, became president. Uhuru made an emotional and conciliatory
3: speech to a nation divided by one of the most hotly contested elections in history. It was kind of a shock to see all oh, this old song being replayed, a song that was probably last played in the 90s in National Airways or at least in National Celebration Days. Then you see it happening in 2013.
1: Uhuru Kenyatta was replaced as president by William Ruto in September 2022.
0: He reached out to the so-called hustlers, those struggling to make ends meet. That was in contrast to his rivals, drawn from Kenya's powerful families, who have shaped the country's politics since independence.
1: Since Ruto's election, Wimbo wa Historia hasn't been heard during the official program of Kenya's national celebration days.
3: For the last one year, we have not seen it being played. There was the December celebrations. There was a June celebrations, but it was not played. So we are just waiting to see.
1: But Dosaline speculates that the song could still make a comeback during the Ruto presidency.
3: We cannot make a conclusive argument to say that it might not be used as a political tool in the coming months. If we remove the Kenyatta aspect of it, it's about personality cult. It's about controlling public remembering for political gain.
1: All right, so we're just going to wait to see whether it will be played this year at the 60th anniversary of Independence on December the 12th.
3: Yeah, we will be watching, see, yeah. And how would you feel to hear it being played? It annoys me, especially the last performance in which a young child did a cover of the original song.
1: Yeah, I've heard that one. It was recorded, wasn't it, in 2018
0: by a singer called Leila. <laughs>
3: Her voice is so beautiful, such a young child singing such a powerful song. I was annoyed about it, <laughs> so if it were to be played in the 60th celebrations, I would still be annoyed because it means that the work that we do as scholars in terms of the creation of a new nation state, it it's challenges that. It means that we are not, we are constant, there is no progress. If the nation state, the creation of a nation state is still dependent on memories that are insufficient and memories that the public is urged to forget.
1: By urged to forget, you mean those last few lines saying, forget the suffering, is that what you mean?
3: Yes, because the whole idea about creating a nation from zero is that if you are to acknowledge the violence of the colonial state, first of all, you're going to ask for reparation then you realize that even the new state that came in after independence in 63 kind of inherited those structures so if you are talking about reparations or at least acknowledgement of the violence that has happened that violence did not end in 63 this violence kept being perpetuated by the government that came after so part of the forgiving and forgetting i think is also to make sure that subsequent regimes do not feel responsible for solving the crimes of the violences that happened under their regime?
1: If you're still urging people to forget that violence, even though you are celebrating it at the same time almost a it's it's contradictory in itself as you say, and B, you're saying, well uh, let's not worry about justice for for what happened.
3: Yes, because if you were to open the gates and ask for justice for the violence of the colonial state, It has to continue to the injustices of the immediate post-colonial state, the violence that has continued to define the post-colony today.
1: There have been flare-ups of political and ethnic violence in Kenya in the decades since independence, most notably in the 1990s and in 2007 and 2008, when more than a thousand people were killed around the time of a general election. More violence also marred the 2017 election.
3: So if you open the doors and say, oh, uh, we need to acknowledge those violences, we need to remember them for these reasons. Then where do we draw the line and say we are only going to remember all the way to 1963? And then after that, we we forget about all the other violences that continue to define the state. Hmm. So it's a kind of protecting the status quo in terms of politics. That's why the song becomes an important political tool. It silences people.
1: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks to our colleagues Julius Minor and Kagur Gacheshi in Kenya and to Doseline Kiguru at the University of Bristol. We'll put a link to her article on Kenyan choral music in our show notes along with a link to a collection of articles that Julius and his team have chosen to highlight for the 60th anniversary of Kenya's independence. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was written and produced by Katie Flood and me, Gemma Ware, with production assistance from Mend Maruwani. I'm also the show's executive producer. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor, Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. You can connect with us on Instagram at theconversation.com, or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at TC underscore audio, or email us directly at podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and The Conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com and please rate and review the show wherever you listen. It really does help us reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.